Let's take our Bibles and open them to the book of James chapter 4. We're going to look at the first six verses today in a message that I have entitled, He Gives More Grace. And as you can see already, I need it. More grace. Amen. Let's take our hearts to the Lord God. Thank you so much just for loving us and just for uh, God uh, saving us, really, Lord. What can we say? How, what, how can we respond in a way that would ever uh, be adequate for what you have done for us? And so, Lord, we just say, here are our lives. Take them. God, have your way in and through them. Be glorified by them. And, Father, we pray that now you would speak to our hearts as you, are so, faithful, as you so faithfully do through your word by the power of your spirit. We give you this time uh, in Jesus' name we pray and we say amen. Amen. The Bible teaches that as the body of Christ, we are one. That just as your physical body composes many individual members, but you know, all together just makes one body, so too the body of Christ. Though we are many, we remain one body. Each individual adding an element to the body, a dynamic, a gifting, you know, that makes up the whole. You need me and, and I need you if we're to function and flourish as God intended. I serve you through the means which in which God has gifted me, and you serve me through the means in which God has gifted you. The point being that we, you and me, we serve one another. Now it may be individually, it may be corporately, however the case may be, but we are to edify one another, and in so doing we are to glorify God. The psalmist wrote, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. There's just something beautiful, something powerful, something formidable about a church that is united. But it's incredibly tragic when a church body is divided. Uh, we belong to one and the same family. We trust one and the same Savior. Uh, we're indwelt by one and the same Holy Spirit. And yet we will fight in war against one another. In his letter, uh, James is speaking into just such a situation here. He's writing to a people who should be united in their love for God, in their love for his word, in their love for one another, a people who should be united in worship and in service, but they're divided. Uh, There's contention. There's strife, ongoing hostility toward one another. Well, last week, if you were with me, you remember that the curtain closed with words of peace. Well, here in chapter 4, it opens with words of war. So if you're with me, let's turn our attention, beginning in the first verse of the fourth chapter. James writes, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask.'" 
You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You know, it's interesting to me if you just kind of think, I don't know, uh, how we can have a tendency to sort of glamorize the early church. You know, and of course, we would never seek to diminish or in any way detract from the work of the fundamental and foundational, uh, you know, uh, things that the apostles and the prophets did as the church was born and being established there. Absolutely, uh, there were wonderful, powerful, incredible goings on in the early church. Yet, guys, if we were to assess, if we were to simply, honestly, objectively read through the New Testament, you have to conclude there were a lot of problems in the early church. The vast majority of the epistles were written as corrective letters. They're addressing problems that need to be repented of, or reconciled, or made right in the sight of God. The Corinthians were dividing over which leader that they would follow. They were suing one another. They were allowing open, flagrant, unrepentant sin happening in the midst of the congregation under the banner of love and acceptance. Paul said that the Galatians were biting and devouring one another. The Ephesians were struggling to maintain the spirit, the bond of unity in the spirit of peace, or the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. Uh, There were issues in Philippi. Of the seven churches that Jesus addressed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there were five of them that needed some kind of, uh, they needed to repent of some kind of sin or compromise in their midst. Here's the point. The people in the early church were a lot more like you and me than we often care to admit. And that's because although times and cultures change, listen to me, the human heart remains the same. And James is going to point his finger not only upon the what that's happening here, but also the why. Now, what is it that's happening? He says wars and fights are taking place among them. There is conflict. There is contention. There is strife. There is division. And he covers the full gamut here. He says wars. Now the word war is a big picture kind of a word. The the overarching long-term experience. You know, be it something within yourself, perhaps like an ongoing addiction, for example. Or an external ongoing relationship issue. It's it's a long, a big picture kind of. Now the word fights points to the individual skirmishes in the overarching war. Okay, So he's talking about everything, the whole spectrum here. And essentially what's taking place is that these guys are going at it with one another. And James is going to expose the why of it all. And guys, it's not because of some kind of honorable spiritual resolve that is creating conflict, that someone just refuses to not compromise in godliness. You know, last week we discussed the fact, we developed the fact, established, if you will, how carnality likes to disguise itself uh, as spirituality. You know, there they were, Miriam and, and Aaron complaining to Moses when 
really, they were just gunning for his position. They were wanting to share in his authority. They were wanting to be seen and recognized as people of importance. Their opinion was to matter and make a difference in the camp and all. And they were putting on a front that appeared spiritual, but behind it all was just a, a, a will that was, that was self-centered. And such will always be the case and cause of wars and fights among us. It's not because we're all walking in such, you know, humility and are only hungry for God's glory. No, it's due to the desires, James says very specifically, for pleasure that war in our members. In other words, it's not God's glory that we're after. It's our gain. Does that make sense? The desire to obtain what we don't have but really want. It could be power, could be position, could be preeminence, could be influence, whatever. But this is where war originates from. Guys, we're seeing it play out on the global stage even as we speak. But it's equally true and applicable between individuals. Now the word pleasure here, if I say it right, is hedonon or hedonon. It's the word from which we get our word uh, hedonistic. Uh, Someone who lives for pleasure. Absorbed in self-indulgence. Constantly looking for gratification, uh, but never finding it. Why? Why is one always looking for gratification, but it's always just out of reach? It's always just, if I just then I would be happy. It's because, you guys hear me say it all the time. The flesh is never satisfied. And where he says that these desires war in your members, now this is interesting, the word war here is different from the word translated war in the earlier part of this verse. This word, and I may murder it too, is strateo, from where we get our word strategy. Guys, Never underestimate the deviousness, the cunning craftiness of your flesh to undermine, overcome, and destroy you. This is, in other words, it strategizes against you. Uh, This is the word that Peter used when he wrote, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war, which strategeo, however you say, uh, against the soul. The fleshly lust will strategize against your soul, undermine your resolve, you see. But the point here is that conflict will come out of our desires for more. Something we don't have, but we want it. We think that it will bring the fulfillment, the gratification that we're looking for along with it. Ultimately, it's what, again, what we established or developed back in verse 14. It's rooted in the self-seeking in our hearts. Remember, James said, but if you, well, let's just look back at verse 14 of chapter 3. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. Don't put up a front. Don't act like that's not what's happening. 
It goes back to that selfish ambition that we spoke of last time that Paul wrote of in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but through lowliness of heart or mind. Let each one esteem others as better than himself. Not esteeming uh, others, but instead we put ourselves forward first. This is just the opposite of what Paul exhorted us to do. This word lust in verse 2 speaks of craving. It's, it's really, you could say, uh, the, uh, you, you crave and, and do not have. Uh, it's the same idea. You want it, you don't have it, but you crave it. And he says you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You go, wait, what? Murder? I mean, what's this about? I mean, is he, is he saying that, that people are, are actually, literally drawing swords and running others through to get what they want? I mean, no, probably not. Uh, though covetousness, covetousness, I would say, can certainly lead to the literal act, right? Uh, actually, when you go through the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, covetousness can cause you to break all other nine. It's a... It's a devious type of a sin, I, should, I guess I would say. But this takes us back to James's big brother's Sermon on the Mount. It was there that Jesus explained that the law was never really aimed at the outward action so much as it was the inward intent of the heart. You know, the religious leaders were interpreting the law as physical when in reality Jesus was trying to help them understand and Paul would explain later in the book of Romans that the law is in fact spiritual. And so Jesus sought to explain to them that if you look on a woman with lust in your heart then you've already committed adultery, you're guilty of adultery before God. If you hate someone in your heart then you've, you've, you're guilty of murder. You've, you've cut them off, you see, in your heart. They're dead to you. In chapter 15 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, notice, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Guys, think about the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples the night before he was crucified. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But guys, what happens when rather than having love for one another, a church is caught up in strife and divisions and contentions and conflict. Well, people aren't drawn to Jesus in that kind of environment, are they? More than anything, it causes them to question his validity. It may turn them off or away completely. Listen, the gathering of the body isn't an arena in which we are to promote ourselves, but it's a place where we exalt Jesus Christ. And so, the essence of sin is selfishness. Covetousness leads to conflict. But here at the end of verse 2, James adds to the mix something else that's promoting their problems. Do you see it there? It's prayerlessness. 
He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Guys, the appropriate means by which a believer are to have his, her, their needs met, we're talking needs, not greeds, is by asking God, okay? In other words, what James is trying to develop with us is that so much of our destructive desires are rooted in us because we're not seeking the Lord to meet our needs. We're not bringing our desires before Him in prayer. The Bible is clear. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, notice, let your requests be made known to God. Bring your requests to God. Let Him, A, satisfy, B, refine, C, delay, or D, deny them, right? If you find strife or envy, covetousness or lust in your heart, guys, you got to take that to the Lord, okay? Commit those things to Him that are in your heart. Don't lie and boast against the truth. Don't think, you know, you put on that spiritual front so God's like, oh, what a good boy, what a good girl. No, he sees the heart. Bring it to him. Confess it before him. It's interesting how much focus that people will place on what they refer to as uh, unanswered prayer. And of course, James will get to that. But before we get there, he says, man, let's think through unasked prayer. If you have a desire in your heart, bring it to the Lord. You say, well, Jeff, I mean, um, it's hard to ask for those things that I know are selfish. Exactly. That's, guys, that's part of the value of prayer. You know, bringing those dark desires into the light, allowing God to deal with them. So wait, what you're saying is that, you know, uh, you, 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 I know it's wrong, but I should ask anyway. No, you, you misunderstand me. What I'm saying is that as you bring your desires before the Lord, it's brought out of darkness into light. You see, you sense, you're convicted, you know this is wrong, this is sin, this is selfish. You don't ask him for it. You confess the sin of it and repent, you see. Or guys, there may be nothing wrong with the desire. It's just not what God has for you. At least not now, not yet, right? We know that there are a few answers that God gives in prayer. He always answers the prayer. It may be yes, it may be no, or in the words of the how do you say, recognized and established philosopher Tom Petty? <laughs> you take it on faith, you take it to the heart. But the waiting is the hardest part, right? In other words, <laughs> in other words God may say, wait, it's not now. You know, the the affirmative is coming, right? In other words, sometimes God will tell us what, but man, I've discovered that he won't always reveal when. You understand? 
But I want you to, to realize something because now and then you'll run across someone who says that they don't pray. And they say, well, I don't, you know, because they either they feel like it's selfish or God already knows what I want or what I need, and so why would I bother him with asking of him? Or something along these lines. People over the years will reason and rationalize their thoughts like this to you. And guys, you should realize that that mentality, though it sounds noble, though it sounds humble, is in direct defiance to the word of God. Okay, think about this. The father, in speaking to the son, Psalm chapter two, he said, ask of me, the father speaking to the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Charles Spurgeon said of this, if the royal and divine son of God cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot expect the rule to be relaxed in our favor. Why should it be? In other words, why should God make an exemption or an exception for me that he wouldn't for his own son? Now, guys, I wouldn't go so far as to say this is a spiritual law that we won't receive if we don't ask. But I would say, but you, why? Because God can give freely of his grace anytime he wants to. But I would say this is about as close to a spiritual law as you could get without crossing that line. Okay? Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who, what's the word? A Come on, what's the word? Asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it, to him who knocks, it will be opened. He said this, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will, what will you do? What will you do? Will you think about it? Will you go, well, he already knows, so why bother him? Is that what he said? He said, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. I'll give you one more. I say to you, whatever things you, come on, somebody. Yes. When you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Guys, I'm trying to get you to see the absolute priority of prayer. If I won't so much as humble myself, obey God's word, and bring my request before him, then why should I anticipate him to do what I, even I, what I won't even petition him for? Do you see what I'm saying? I'm in defiance of his word. I'm not going to ask, but I'm going to expect you to act. God says, no, I'm not. it doesn't work like that. We say, well, I did ask, but I didn't receive. Well, James deals with that too. He says, you ask and do not receive because, underline it, you ask amiss or with wrong motive, right? It, it's, it's not in tune with the heart of God because you want to spend it or, or use it for or benefit yourself. You see, spend it on your pleasures. He's touching on a sore spot here, isn't he? This is one of those scabs that he just, he's just kind of picking it off and like pouring a little salt in it, you know? 
He's, he's hitting us where it hurts, you know. Uh, he's putting his finger on the fact, listen to this, guys. He's putting his finger on the fact that selfishness shows up even in our prayers. We forget that prayer isn't about persuading a reluctant God. You know, as though God's up there on the throne and he's sort of annoyed every time you come to him and you're really trying to reason, you're really trying to share your side and you're really trying to talk him into it and he's not going for it, but if you just go at it long enough, man, okay, okay, you know, okay, let's do that. You know, as though you're trying to persuade a reluctant God. No, it's, it's not about getting our will done in heaven, getting God to do our bidding. It's about getting God's will done on earth. It's about aligning our will with his, partnering with him in the accomplishing of his will on this planet through our lives by whatever means he deems appropriate. Does that make sense? Jesus, when he modeled prayer for us, he he modeled for us how to pray. He said, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. In other words, we're acknowledging where he is, where we're not, who he is, who we're not. He is high and holy. We are humbled, coming before him in humility. Your kingdom come. Notice, your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. In other words, no one's denying, no one's defying, no one's detracted from what God wants in heaven. And he's saying, so be it on earth. When he was praying, when Jesus was praying just prior to the cross, he said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. You know, he said, if there be another way, you remember that? He's like, Father, if there's any other way, then, then let's, let's do that. But not my will. You see that? But yours be done. You know, I've discovered, if you're anything like me, and I suspect that you are, because I believe everyone here qualifies as humanity, we love to take things out of context. And you see this happen a lot, even in, you know, church a church atmosphere. And we say things like, you know, Jesus said, ask and it will be given. Or whatever you ask in prayer, believing you'll receive it, you, you know, you'll have them. And, and, we, and we like to apply those words to our, our greeds rather than needs or even really with consideration of what God desires in the situation. But when Jesus uttered those words, when he said, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. When he said, whatever you ask in my name, believing you'll receive them, you will have them. When he uttered those words, who was he speaking to? Do you remember? He was speaking to his disciples, right? Now, what is the very first prerequisite of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, if anyone desires to come after me, let him. What are the words? Come on, somebody. Deny himself. Take up his cross. Death to self. The self will. And follow me. Guys, we come to God. In other words, 
If we were to take that very first prerequisite, denying self, that would remedy 90% of why, you know, we don't. In other words, James is like, you come for the purpose of yourself, of persuading God to do something selfish for you. But if we would deny ourselves, you see, you see where I'm going here? In other words, we come to God asking for a raise at work or, or to win the lottery or find the next exploding cryptocurrency or you know, whatever the case may be, and we tell him God will be able to give more at church, you see. But underneath it all is that nice car, that bigger home, that vacation package, that creature comfort. In other words, and it's not that it's wrong to just want to provide for your family. I hope you're not misunderstanding me, but what I'm trying to say is that we, we want it for our gain, not for his glory. Does that make sense? You get the idea. God is always searching the heart. And we want to throw the smoke screen up. Oh God, if I win the lottery, the church's going to get that event center. Yeah, but you don't even give now or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It, it's one of those things where if you're not faithful in the small things, well, you know, what makes you think you're going to be faithful with the larger things? Why don't you start where you're at and see what God does from there? Start honoring him. Give him glory. Everything that he's given you is from him to you. It's for him, from him. Why are we not honoring him? You see what I'm saying? And guys, it's okay to say God, this is what's in my heart. You know, and, and truth be told, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is what you would have. I don't know if it's what you want for me or from me. So God, have your way, be it in this ministry or my family. You know, your will be done in my life. This is the way I'm leaning. This is the way I'm thinking. But God, please persuade me, show me, lead me, whatever the case may be. Okay. Um. Because sometimes, I'm be honest with you, sometimes it's hard to distinguish and discern. Is this something that the Lord, because we get excited about things. So is this something that the Lord would have for me? Is this something I'm just wanting to do? Well, the Bible does say that God will give you the desire of your heart. In other words, um, God will put a desire, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So remember the grid we run it through, the wisdom of God? What's the motive behind it? What's happening through it? What's the net effect of it? You see, we begin to discern and distinguish. But it's okay to come before God and say, God, I don't, I don't know. Would you give me wisdom to understand and to lead me in this way? Now, in verse 4, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Hmm. You know, so many uh, pastors, preachers today are worried about offending their congregation. They don't want to thin the ranks in their sanctuary. James just makes it plain. He says, adulterers, adulteresses, you know. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? By the way, the oldest manuscripts of this letter don't have the word adulterers here. Only adulteresses, pointing plainly to the fact that it's primarily women that are the trouble. 
No, I jest about that. That is not what it points to, okay? I just wanted to see if you were still awake, and uh, I don't, I'm just kidding, no emails. Um, but it is true that it, it, the oldest manuscripts says adulteresses here, and the word adulterers is not there. Uh, and it's possible that some scribe was just thinking, well, that's not really fair. It takes two to tango. You know, uh, if there's an adulteress, there's certainly an adulterer. And so let's just make it clear here. But the truth is that James is not speaking about physical adultery. Okay, he's speaking of spiritual adultery, of believers being unfaithful to God. The whole context is the self-centeredness, the going after things that aren't of God or in the heart of God. You know, in the Old Testament, God considered the nation of Israel to be his bride, yes? And when they would succumb to adultery, uh, the, or pardon me, idolatry, then God considered that spiritual adultery. Well, they were unfaithful to him. You and me, we as the church are the bride of Christ, you understand. And so when we succumb to the ways and the wants of this world, right, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, that which he has called us out of, right? He's like, the world hates you because I've chosen you out of the world, you're in the world, you're not of the world. But when we succumb to the heart of the world, we're being unfaithful to him. You see, we're to be separate from those things. Come out from among them, says the Lord there, right? First Corinthians. Do not touch that which is unclean. In other words, God calls us beyond salvation into sanctification. To be separate from those things. But we're giving the love and devotion that belongs to him to something other than him we're, we're being unfaithful to the Lord. Guys, imagine your wife getting closer to another man than she is to you. Or ladies, imagine your husband, husband being closer to another woman than he is to you. And yet, we do this to Jesus. And yet, and we think somehow it's It's different. When we give the devotion and the affection of our hearts to something of this world, it becomes our master passion, our priority. That's the God we serve. That's the one with whom we are unfaithful to Christ, you see. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, again, the world is simply the state of or standards of man, the desires, the values, the aspirations of man apart from God. Friendship with the world, living like the world, is enmity or hostility, is what it means, with God. Here's what we need to think about. What do you really want? Okay? Whoever therefore wants, do you see that word? It's an important word. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here's the idea. You and me, we need to make our choice. Are you going to draw near to God? Are you going to set your heart to be loyal uh, to Jesus Christ and give your devotion and your affection to Him? You see, God doesn't need to declare you His enemy. 
If you choose the way of the world, you choose to make yourself an enemy of God. That's what he says here. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world or friendship with the world, again, we're not talking about reaching people for Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus was the friend. We're we're talking about, again, the values, aspirations, the ways, the standard of, of man apart from God. If this is what your heart is kind of drifting toward, drawn toward, and, and going after, he says, you, you're, you're setting yourself against God. You, you've made yourself the enemy of God. And guys, I don't think that anyone wakes up one day, and we're talking here about believers, right, who are drifting, who are distracted, who are going away. And He says, listen, and I don't think that anyone just wakes up one day and says, you know what, I think I'm going to go the way of the world. There's an interesting study about a man named Demas in... Um, in Paul's letters, when he's signing off, he, he, he writes, you know, son, this guy greets you, that guy greets you, and this woman, and whatever the case may be. And there's a, there's a man named Demas that shows up in his letters. And in the earlier letter, he's right there with him, ministering alongside him. A little bit later, it's like, you know, he greets you. But then at the end, the, la- the latest letter is like, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now, I don't think Demas just woke up one day and went, I think I'm going to fall off the world. And we don't do that. Guys, it starts with subtle compromise, a slip here or there. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1 warns of the dangers of drifting. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been in a boat out on the lake at night and you turn the motor off and you're just hanging out and before you know it, you turn around and like you've, you've drifted you know, my dad used to take me drift fishing as a kid, you know, and it was so boring, I couldn't stand it. But they call it, you know, fishing, not catching, so I get it. But my point is, is you would go out in the middle of the lake and you just turn the boat off. And an hour goes by, you don't realize you've gone anywhere, but man, you have, you have, you, you got to start it, you got to get back into the, because you're over there by the, in the shallows or whatever the case may be. In other words, this is the way it is when we subtly slip and compromise and give way to just that little sin. We just set ourselves off course. You know, we just start to drift. We don't notice it. We're not making a cognizant decision to deny God necessarily, but you begin to to drift toward friendship with the world. But he says, the spirit who dwells in you yearns jealously. Now, this verse isn't one that's easy to translate. Uh, James could be saying that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in you. Uh, It could be saying the Holy Spirit in you yearns jealously. Either way, it's true. God is jealous for you. Now, he's not jealous of you, but he is jealous for you. In other words, he wants all of your heart. He doesn't want to share you with the ways and the things and the works of this world. And when he says that, you know, uh, do you think the scripture says in vain, he's not really quoting a particular verse, more of the essence of a scriptural truth. In other words, we serve a jealous God. Uh, The Spirit will convict you when you're in sin. As it is written, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Yeah. 
And then he says in, in verse 6, and, and we're going to close with this. So, uh, if Abby, you want I guess you're my closer. Joe, who, Karen, I'm sorry. Come on uh, up. But he says, and underline it, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love the way that our section of Scripture concludes today because for all the sin, all the self-centered motives and ambitions leading to horrible behavior that we've talked about, grace is available. Don't you love that? In other words, where sin abounds, you remember that? In the book of Romans, grace abounds still more. What a contrast between who we are, the first what, four verses, and who he is. What we do and what he's about. He gives more grace. The more help that's needed, the more grace that's available. Ladies and gentlemen, that's good news. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's the point, you guys. Grace is available, but it's only going to be effective. It's only going to make a difference, make the resolve, reconcile the need if you're willing to set yourself in a place to receive it. You can't earn it. You can only position yourself to receive it. How do you do that? He says, through humility. God resists the proud. And the word resist, ladies and gentlemen, is actually a military term. It means to range in battle against. Think about that. Our pride will cause God to set himself against us. Think about that. But humility, submission to God's authority, invokes, invites his grace. It's by grace that we're saved. It's by grace that we're sanctified. Listen, family, all the medicine in the world will not cure our sickness if we won't take it. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can have all the help laid out in front of you, but if you won't receive it, then it's not going to help you. Even so, God has grace. But if you won't receive it, if you won't humble yourself, whatever your sin, God has more grace. Humble yourself before Him. Come boldly before the throne of grace, the Bible says, that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God, we thank You that You give more grace. Surely it is what we need. I pray, God, that you forgive our pride and obstinate ways, but, Lord, that we would 
deny ourselves, crucify the flesh along with its passions and desires. That we would walk in humility and may our lives bring you glory. Again, while our heads are bowed and we're just kind of thinking through maybe, I don't, I don't know what the Lord is maybe speaking to you or dealing with you about, but I just want you to realize that it's by grace that we're saved. And maybe you're in that place where that, that's your need. You don't know the Lord. You've never given your heart to the Lord. I mean, listen, I encourage you, don't rest in your pride. Humble yourself before the Lord. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Uh, We've all turned our own way, but God has laid upon Jesus, you see, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Jesus paid the penalty of death. He shed His blood on our behalf. He was the one who was crucified for our transgression and raised for our justification. So believe upon Him, you see, and you will be saved. And so if you need the Lord to come into your heart, to come into your life, to forgive you of your sin and to make you new, then then let's do it right here, right now. I don't care how old or young you are, where you've been, what you've done. If this is your first time here, you've been coming for a while, it doesn't matter. If you need Christ to forgive you of your sin and to make you new, that's why we're here. You're the most important person here right now. Let God's grace flood into your heart and into your life. Can I pray for you? If if so, uh, then I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And If I see your hand, I'll say so and you can put it back down. But I just want to give you a second to go, you know what? (laughs) I'm done fighting. Uh, I'm not going to resist in pride. I'm going to humble myself today. Today is the day of salvation. Is that you? Let me pray for you. Anybody? I'll give you just a second here. Okay, well, Lord, we just want to say thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, we, we pray, Lord, that we would take your word to heart. Lord, that we would bring the desires of our heart to you and allow you to work in and mold and shape and form and fashion our hearts and lives into what you would have them to be. Lord, we are the clay. You are the master potter. So be glorified in us, Lord. Pour your spirit out upon us. Embolden us by your Spirit. Let our light so shine, God, that people see you, that you are glorified in our lives. And be glorified in this place. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.